And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. John Heileman is going to be here soon. If there's, uh, other than Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, if there's a more important and famous political journalist uh, walking the earth right now, I don't know who that is. Uh, and calling Heileman just a political journalist is uh, selling him short. He is uh, a regular presence on television. He and his partner, writing partner Mark Halperin, uh, together they wrote the enormous uh, hit books, uh, Game Change and Double Down, have recently made a deal with Bloomberg to launch um, their own political journalism uh, like network. I think I actually am not sure exactly what the thing is. It's amorphous to me, but it won't be once John gets here. He is one of the most interesting, uh, opinionated, and absolutely one of the smartest guys that I know. Uh, over the past few years, we've spent a good amount of time together. And sometimes uh, I'll be sitting at dinner with a group of people, and I'll just sit back and watch the way Heilman is processing everything that goes on in the room. And uh, it's really a thing to behold. And I, I want to talk to him about how he developed his faculty to both participate and observe and record. Uh, and I want to talk to him about uh, how he got here, because he wasn't always a political journalist. He uh, covered the tech sector, worked for Wired. He's been on the cutting edge of a lot of stuff. And if you've ever read his stuff, particularly his column um, for New York Magazine, which was really an unadulterated, uh, Heilman, an unadulterated form, uh, you see echoes of some of the most important voices in uh, new journalism, but filtered through his own particular prism. And I want to talk to him about his, how he developed his writing style and, and what he's trying to achieve when he writes. So we'll we'll try to get to all that when he gets here. He's going to get here soon. Uh, and uh, he's going to take up a lot of space in this little booth because he's he's a, a tall man. He's a, he's a big man, and he'll be here shortly. Thanks. Good. John Heilman. I have a fantasy about being a rock star. It's still, you know, like of all the, like the weird fantasies, you know? Like, yeah. I mean... Really, at this age, you know, like, I know there's no chance that I could ever be, you know, hitting home runs at Yankee Stadium. But, like, there's still some weird, like, little part of me that thinks there's some chance that I could be a rock star. Like, you know, like, you know, you look at, yeah, it's like, you know, Mick Jagger's doing these, like, in his 70s. I think, you know, there might be a chance for a late career change here, yeah. you know. Well, you know what's really depressing? Because <laughs> we're pretty much the same age. You and I, are, you're a couple of years older than me. But you know what? Uh, do you remember when Mark Knopfler broke through and everyone talked about how old he was? Right. Right. You know that guy was like 15 years younger. Yeah. Than oh, I know. I know. It's depressing. <laughs> they were saying like, you know. <laughs> oh, uh, old Mark Knopfler. He's not very good looking either. And he's starting to lose his hair. It's like, yeah. well, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of there, but that's all right. You know, yeah. you look at like James Murphy though. You know, you look at some of these guys. There's guys who are like, you know, almost 50 who are still like doing cutting edge work right now. Sure. At that age. And so you look at them and you think, well, you know, now granted, They've been doing it for the last thirty years, leading up. It would be hard to start anew in that in that career path right now. I mean, guys, like they, <laughs> that's the you know, fantasy part. But you know, like uh, I mean, I remember thinking um, Adam Durowitz, who's one of my favorites, yeah. County Crows. Again, you know, he was like thirty-one, and it almost seemed like he just squeaked in. Yeah, correct. So totally. Rockstar's not going to happen for you, but no, that's true. But I wonder if you thought that it was realistic ten years ago no. that you would become fa that that oh. all this would happen for you that you'd become. Um, you know, b bigger than the story uh, at times. No, 
no, I didn't really. I mean, I, I, it's just the answer, only way to answer that question is to is to is to say, did you ever think that it was realistic that you know you would write a book that would sell a million copies and be made into a movie and blah 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 blah? And the answer to that is, I mean, it wasn't outside the realm of fantasy, but you know, we we, we thought you know the, the this gets to be a boring answer, but you know, we thought that Game Change would be was a good book and it had news in it and we thought it would get some attention and we thought it could be successful but to get that level of success for a non-fiction narrative about presidential politics which was a genre that people thought was dead before we did the book and there was no commercial precedent for it back as far as until like you have to go back to fear and loathing on the campaign trail in 72 for a book and that sold so it'd been, it'd been 40, they've been 36 years, right? So, and the theater white books before that. Yes, and before that. So the last big, the big selling presidential campaign book was 72. So we thought we could do a book that would be more successful than many of the books that have been written in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, like a great book like What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. I was going to ask you, wasn't that a hit book? No, it, it was a huge failure. It was a massive failure. And now it lives on in lore because it's a, it's a fantastic and brilliant book. And it took Richard, you know, four or five years to write it and it's you know a thousand pages long and it's it's like tolstoy right it's brilliant but i mean when it came out it was a it was a commercial catastrophe and it's part of the reason why people weren't doing these books anymore because it was like well if you could do a piece of art like that and it would fall so flat it now has this evergreen life because people are rediscover it and assign it in college classes and oh, journalists. Guys like a, you talk about yeah, it. Yeah, right. But it, at the time, it was a big failure. I didn't read it then, and I was like a way into politics right. then. And right. When did the book come out? 80, right. 80, well, the book was about 88. It came out right. in like 92, 93. So, I mean, I was way into politics then. Right. Um, but I didn't read the book. Right. I, I mean, I, I, I don't even, I hardly think I even knew about the book until Ten somewhere years within later. the last five right. years yeah. when. Yeah. Uh, I, I read it and I was blown away by uh, the writing in that so book. It's incredible. And research. incredible. But, so we thought the book could be successful and more successful than books that had been done. We thought there was a commercial opportunity. The, the campaign had been so riveting and people were so into it and people had these big larger than life characters, you know, the, the Obamas and the Clintons and McCain and Palin, you know, but you can't have that level of success without a huge amount of like lightning strike quality luck, right? You can't, a bad, a, if it, the book had been bad, it wouldn't have been successful. But so good is an important part, I think. And then good isn't enough to sell that many copies. So we got lucky in the sense that in very quick succession, a piece of news that we didn't expect to be news, which was the thing about Harry Reid and his comment about Obama not having a Negro dialect, right? That exploded on the Saturday before the book came out. And so you had the Senate Majority Leader apologizing to the president, the president having to publicly accept his apology, people talking about whether Harry Reid could survive on all unplanned on the Saturday. And then on Sunday night, the thing that we did plan, which was the 60 Minutes thing with Steve Schmidt and Palin, the, the one-two punch of those, but one of those was totally unplanned. The one-two punch of those things created this frenzy around the book, and that you could never, no one could reasonably ever but, thought And, and because nobody could reasonably think it would happen, I don't imagine that you, in a reasonable way, thought about the personal ramifications of that kind of success coming along well into what was an extraordinarily successful journalistic career. Yeah. But the fact that... Um, the fact that suddenly you became um, at the center of this, you and your partner, Mark, but that you became at the center of this, I wonder how it's made your jobs easier and more difficult and how you how you processed all that happening to yourself. It was like, well, it was weird for sure. And, you know, the combination of things of that with 
having been doing a lot more television, you know, in the course of the 08 cycle. Yes. So, you know, being on TV and then the book having this kind of runaway success um, in a in an un, in kind of unexpected fashion. And then the movie getting made, which, you know, obviously we weren't in the movie. Well, we were in the movie for about three seconds. But, you know, that didn't elevate our profiles. But it did elevate the profile of the book again, like two years later, right? And to have a movie with Julianne Moore and Woody Harrison or Woody Harrelson and, and Ed Harrison at and HBO doing what they always do with these things, which is promoting it like crazy. And then the movie winning Emmys and Globe and Golden Globes and all that stuff. No, I mean... Uh, my profile had risen, and then this was like, um, like turbocharged that. And I certainly did not expect to be ever, you know, with a. Uh, I hope to be a successful magazine writer, you know. And then I was on TV a little bit, but on cable or whatever. But something about the alchemy of all those things has ended up in a place where you know I get recognized on the street and in airports all the time, and that's a weird thing that I'm still not totally. I'm. I'm not at all, there's nothing bad about it. And I'm always like totally happy to have someone come up and say either I love you on Morning Joe or I love Game Change or I love your columns in New York Magazine, whatever it is. I love it. But it's but it's odd still. And I still am a little bit like, it still seems a little weird when someone stops me and does, does that. It happened to me at Elvis Costello last night at Carnegie Hall. You know, I walked out to get a drink and there were two guys in the in the bar at Carnegie Hall and one of them was... I love you on Morning Joe. And the other one was, oh, the game change guy, you know, <laughs> and that's still, it's hugely like, I mean, you know, you're flattered and, but it's also odd, you know. And, and, and how has it, have you felt at all that, um, that being somehow in the club now with some of the people that you cover, has it, I guess two things. One, has it, has it um, added perhaps slightly more empathy? I know it doesn't make you give them, cut them a break when you actually report. But I wonder, one on the positive, has it, has it given you some more empathy for sort of like having to make decisions and process stuff in public as things are coming at you very quickly? Yeah. And then two, has it made it at times harder than to render uh, judgment when you are, there's a clubby aspect to fame, politics, show business, that yeah. intersection? Yeah. Well, it's, you know... There's no doubt, and what I experience is a minuscule compared to what Hollywood stars experience when they get, you know, a paparazzi who stake out their houses, right? Obviously, minuscule, minuscule. But even a minuscule thing of knowing that, like, you know, Diana, my wife, will be in an airport or something, and she'll, I'll, I'm loud, you know, I'm a loud mouth, right? And I'll start saying something intemperate about somebody or something, and she'll be like, you know, you have to keep your mouth shut because there's someone who could be next to you here, could overhear this, and they're going to tweet that you trashed so and so or said such and such, and I'm still not used to that, and so it gives even that minuscule thing makes you empathetic, not just to politicians, but to anybody who has to deal with. Knowing on some level, not only that there's paparazzi chasing them, again, no paparazzi ever chase me, but, you know, if you're, if you're anybody who's remotely recognizable, especially in this world, there's a chance that someone who's next to you in line, and this has happened to me at the, at the Nets, you know, waiting in line, and then I get into the game, and I As look at- As if having to go see the Nets isn't an insult <laughs> enough, Heilman. <laughs> and then I get into the game, and I look at my Twitter feed, and someone who was standing in the security line with me has tweeted, oh, hey, at Jay Hollis at the game. And I realized that, like, I was standing next to somebody who knew me, and if I had been a dick- or said something, you know, offensive or, or nasty or whatever. It could be on Twitter that next, you know, 20 seconds later. It makes you certainly more empathetic towards people who have to live with that uh, to a greater degree. I think, you know, in terms of politicians, I still have the view, which is that, you know, 
these people take on the mantle of public, uh, a public, a public position. They say, I'm going to run for office. That is an act of volition. And they are therefore putting themselves in a position. And I, again, I'm not saying my situation isn't voluntary, but they have decided that they are going to put themselves on the public stage. And they, they know what that means now in 2014. And they know that that means that people will have cell phones some people will have cell phone cameras and they are, you know, they, they, that's part of the deal. That's part of the gig. You sign up for that and you sign up for being a public figure. And so I don't have, I mean, I have empathy for them as humans who have to go through, under especially presidential candidates, who have to go through these extraordinary kind of public colonoscopies every four years. And so you have empathy for that. And I like to think that when we write, when I write anything, you know, I'm always trying to sort of see the world through the eyes of that character and kind of be like, well, what challenges is this person facing? And how does he, what do they think about them? How do they feel about them? And what do they then do about them? You know, but at the same time, they have chosen for to go through these things, whether it's for the power of being a congressman or a senator or a mayor or president of the United States. And so they've made that's a you know, th- these are smart people and they're making a very, you know, and they and they deliberate with their families. Should I go through this? You know, every single one of them we've ever written about has gone through the, the process of sitting down with their family and friends and thinking about, is this really a trade off I want to make? So they then decide they're going to make it. And once they've made it, you know, I don't want to say they're fair game to be like, you know, treated unfairly, but they are, they have put themselves on the, they put themselves on the line in a way that I can't now say, well, you know, you didn't know this was coming. You know, they know it's coming. But, but still, I wonder if, if some part of you, I was, I was talking to um, a, a U.S. attorney recently who said one of the most important things that I do, and there's a guy who's, you know, prosecuted um, very effectively, many, many powerful and uh, people, but he said, you know, part of what I have to do is go through, is run everything through the idea of um, it's as powerful for me to restrain as it is for me to prosecute. And I'm wondering if you ever, and especially now, like as you said, that you understand that um, sometimes you could say, you could be walking by a TV in the airport and see someone on TV and without any force behind it, say something that you hardly mean to make Diana laugh. Right. Yeah. Or me, or yeah. pr- a friend of Prince, right? A friend of ours. Yes. Not Prince Prince, our friend Jonathan Prince. I don't want to make it seem like you and I are hanging out with Prince yeah. in the airport. Yeah, yeah. that happens to me all Walking the time. Walking through me, with Prince. Prince in Minneapolis. And, Prince Rogers and, and, Nelson. And MSP. Yeah, I'm always up there with the, with, with Prince. But, <laughs> you yeah. should have heard the, the version of Raspberry Beret he yeah. did for me the he other night. He killed it yeah, in it the, awesome. at, uh, at the Delta Lounge, yeah. But <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, at, uh, yeah, on the way to Paisley. And then he yeah. brought you. Yeah. But... Um, I was once we ever at Paisley. I was once at Paisley. I was once at Paisley too. It's inc- it was incredible, incredible, right? You yeah, never crazy, forget yeah, it. But yeah. um, uh, that's the little moment they'll use against us ever for the rest of our lives. You were at yeah. Paisley. Yeah, I was at Paisley. It was great. It was yeah. great. But oh, it was great to be. At <laughs> it Paisley. was great. Though. It was amazing. It was He's Prince. He's the yes. greatest. You know, one yeah. of the five greatest who ever lived. Probably yeah, in a crazy time when he was making incredible music. Yeah. No, me too. But yeah. what I was gonna say is, you could make a comment that you don't even believe right. to make me laugh. Yeah. And. Then you could make a comment that you do believe that you should sort of be. I, I mean, I wonder if if when you piece together these stories, if you run through in your heads, you and Mark, um, did you know? Is this wor- uh Does this earn being reported? Yeah. Do you? Yeah, all the time. Sure. I mean, you know, there's a million things that you know. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Like one. Of, I mean, it's just as an illustrative example. You know. Part of the reason that John McCain had so much trouble in 2008, right, was that back in six years earlier, 
or eight years earlier, in 2000 when he ran, and he had like the open bus and all the reporters hung out with him. They had, you know, he he and his people had this view, which was if reporters get to know John McCain, they'll have sympathy for him and like he'll make some mistakes, but they'll have judgment and they'll say, well, you know, I know McCain didn't mean that thing. You know, he he's I've heard him talk about this subject 25 times. That was the time he said something stupid. I'm not going to nail him on that gaffe. I'm just going to like I'm going to let it slide because and I believe in that. And it's one of the sad things about presidential politics now is that so many reporters don't get to have the kind of personal relationships with candidates so that they can make those judgments. But six years or eight years later, when he ran again, the world had changed. Right. And the the the, the, the people who were out covering him were different and were more the news cycle had sped up. And it was there was a huge incentive for the younger kids on those buses to take things that he had said, you know, but something that was embarrassing and be like, hey, I'll get a guy if I tweet this, you know, I'll get, you know, or if I put it on my Facebook page, I'll get, you know, and there's this incentive now to like the gotcha incentive is higher than it used to be. And the reporters don't have the same relationships. And so, you know, with the candidates and and, then they're younger and they don't have as much judgment in some cases. And so you had this place where McCain was like, I can't let people, I can't be as open now because, you know, between the cell phone cameras and and, and and the speed of social media, I'll get burned if I say something dumb, even if the person totally knows that I didn't, you know, really, that that's not really what I think or really believe, or it's not really reflective of my character. But we do this all the time. We're constantly, you know, looking at things and saying, you know, there's some of them that are unavoidable because it, it becomes, they say something that the press and the public sees on and it becomes an issue in the campaign. Right. And then it becomes part of the story of like, how do they deal with that? And if we write about it, then we try to say, you know, obviously, you know, he didn't mean this thing, but then he was faced with this political dilemma. How does he deal with it? I mean, Romney did this constantly, right? You know, when Romney said the thing about how I don't really care about the very poor, yeah. he, he didn't mean that he didn't care about poor people. He was saying, you know, I'm more concerned about the middle class than I am about the poor. The poor, there's a safety net. The middle class is what's where I'd like to focus my concerns. He was trying to make a nuanced point. Yes, he was trying to make a nuanced point, and yet everyone seized on the quote of I don't care about the very poor. And it became this thing. So, you know, we wouldn't leave that out of the book because it became a, a it became part of what the Obama campaign used to create the caricature of right, Romney. Right, and then because you wanted... And he had to deal with that constantly. You know, the, his campaign was constantly having to deal with the fact that Romney kept making mistakes, some of which really were revealing of his character, some of which were not, but they were all mistake after mistake after mistake, and every time that would happen, you know, it was like, it happens. Yeah, you know, but are, are you... Say. But as having been now... Like, we talked about this briefly the, the other night, but... um. But I want to I want to get into it in a slightly yeah. different way, which is, um, you're when you're writing these things, you're you're picking up on a narrative. You're also sort of like creating a narrative um, to tell the story your way about certain of these people and what they yeah. go through, right? right? Sure. But and then your book comes out, and um, and other people then create a narrative about what it is that you guys did. Like right. what your reasons were, you yeah. know, you look at something like, you know, you guys don't really mention, don't mention Nate Silver at all in the book. I know why. And I know that wasn't, I know that you weren't, um, you weren't taking a position on Nate's. It wasn't about that. It, right. You were, you just guys, you, it seems to me, you should articulate it. I think, um, uh, we're telling a different, we're telling a specific story about what the campaigns thought right. and how they processed it. But then there was this narrative that grew a little bit, um, in some, some segments online of, uh, these guys um, are denying the uh, efficacy of guys who are crunching data and this huge story that turned the election. And they've willfully want to um, they willfully want to say that it's meaningless and that it had no role. 
I, I, I imagine it must have felt very annoying for you when when that wasn't what you were trying to do at all. Yeah, you know, I got to say, I'm like relatively um, thick-hided about that kind of stuff. It's like people are going to say what they're going to say. And, you know, one of the things that really, I mean, to go back to your um, the, the initial, the, 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 the genesis of this whole discussion, right? So one thing that does happen if you do, if you um, be, become as much of the story and get as much focus and, and, and people looking at you and scrutinizing your motives and your work as we have over the course of these two books is that you do develop the other thing that, that, that is true of a lot of people who get a lot, have a lot more, get a lot more attention than us, but you develop a very thick skin about like, you know, there, there's stuff I can control and there's stuff I can't control and the stuff I can't control, I'm not going to worry about that much. And, you know people, you know, this, this is something I, you know, long before either of these books came out, you know, um, you, you know, I would have, you know, people who would read certain something you wrote and be like, you're a right wing hack. And then someone who reads something else you wrote and be like, oh, you're a left wing hack. And you kind of think to yourself, well, how could I, and this happens on Twitter all the time. I, w- I, I wish to say to people often, I would like you to all now, before you make this comment about deciding that I'm a right wing hack or a left wing hack, depending on which your point of view is about this particular thing I said on this particular television show, right? I would like you all to now be able to read everything I've ever written. And then Uh, once you've read everything I've ever written, then we can have a conversation about where I exist along some idea about what the ideological axis is. Of course, that's totally unreasonable and ridiculous. No one, you you can't force people to do that. You know the politicians wish that they could have you do that. Right. Please review everything. Everything I did in the state, you know, please review um, everything I did the whole way. You yes. Know, the whole and way. if you're and if you're a person of some subtlety and nuance, which is to say, you know, um, you believe that um, inequality of incomes is an important thing, and so you're in favor of of higher taxes on the rich and of you know various topics, various things like that, which are traditionally liberal positions. But also, you're in favor of free trade, and you think that like that capitalism is a good thing, which. You know, many people in the in the Democratic Party and certainly trade unions and so on think is like a horrible right wing thing, like globalization is bad for the poor, et cetera. You can get, you know, I, I believe both those things. And so, am I a liberal or am I conservative? I'd like to have that conversation. You know, there are things that I think, you know, my positions are, you know, are traditionally uh, are traditionally. I believe in neoclassical economics. I believe in a whole bunch of things that are, you know, um, that are like that. I was a pro. I thought that the idea of doing welfare reform um, in something close to the way that Bill Clinton did in 1996 was a good idea. Um, but there are also other topics on which I'm, you know, a traditional liberal. And, you know, are, are you in favor? Are you left or right if you're in favor of legalizing marijuana? Are you left or right if you're in favor of gay marriage? I don't know the answer to those questions. Well, these but, things have changed, but right? The, but the thing is that the, the, the whole point, though, is that, like, there are people who, on every given issue, espouse the position of the Democratic Party. And on every, on every issue, espouse the position of the Republican Party. And if you read all of the things and heard everything that ever said, you would come to the conclusion that they were a pretty much down the line liberal or conservative. If you have espoused many views of a lot of complexity and nuance over the course of your life, it's sort of funny when someone says, oh, you're a right wing hack or you're a left wing hack, because if you could, you'd want to say, well, uh, it's a little more complicated than that. But the point that I was actually just trying to make is just to say, at some level, you just sort of shrug and say, okay, you know, that's all right. I can live with that. And, And the same thing is true about certain things in the book. People like, you know, People have a lot of emotional reactions to things that we write or don't write. Again, on both sides of the aisle, and you know, conservatives will have emotional reactions to something that was written about a favorite candidate of theirs, or or Democrats will have something that they don't like. We wrote about Barack Obama. You know, stat geeks had a certain reaction to the fact that we didn't cover. Nate Silver and the growth of, of of the fact that there were not just Nate, but a lot of other people who were doing um, like quantitative quantitative analysis. I mean, we talked a lot about in the book about the fact that the campaigns, 
you know, that the Obama campaign was doing this stuff. And we were we said in the book that what the Obama campaign thought about the election was that, you know, that the the debate didn't move the numbers very much and that what we were we reported what their polling was showing and their polling was uh, they were actually doing polling like Nate wasn't doing polling they were they had a very sophisticated quantitative group of people who were in in in, in Chicago who were looking at samples of raw data done with incredible sophistication every single night and we made the point in the book that they were right and that data was their 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 very sophisticated data operation was right and that the Republican side was systematically wrong throughout the Republican Party. So it wasn't like we were saying we were minimizing the importance of data. What we didn't write about pretty much throughout the book was the role of pundits, you know, of any kind, data pundits and other pundits. There's not like a lot of discussion about, yeah. you know, Peggy I'm, Noonan, and there's not a lot of discussion about of, 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 of whoever your favorite liberal pundit is in the I, book I'm, either. I mean, I think, um, I just think that the quant people would suggest they're not pundits. But that's, all, I mean, they would say they're not pundits, right? They would say that um, they're trying to take the punditry out of, uh, and I think they probably wouldn't even call it opinion. I yes. think they would, Indeed. they would say that they're trying to find a new way to evaluate the data that will give, um, without your preconceived notion, that will will um, enable you to arrive at a probable and and result. Yes. Um, but, but in a but way, the, but, the, but the idea, but the idea that someone who write, who who has a has an interpretive column on the New York Times website, you know, I mean, unless you believe. And, and I do not, that any one person, you know, has a monopoly on truth, right? You know, I think that Nate, you know, as, as an example, you know, was had valuable real estate at the New York Times. And part of the reason why people took him so seriously, there were other people doing the same thing as him, you know, at Huffington Post and other places. Nate had a very valuable piece of real estate and he used it. I don't begrudge him this. He used it to make a set of arguments that were based on data. That's totally fine, you know, but that is... You know, you're doing political analysis then, and you're not. You're, you're not, in fact. He, even he would say all he's trying to do is sketch out the range of prob- probabilistic outcomes. But that's still analysis, and you're still writing columns. There are words and there's opinions that are embedded in those columns. It's not like there's no, you know, one objective truth out there. Right? Yeah, but I was the only thing, and then we will move off this. But the yeah. only thing that I um, would would ask you is, uh, and, I, and I just, I'll just say, just, just, I mean, again, I'll let you ask your question, but like the notion that there's now something called data journalism, right? That's what people talk about, data journalism. Like, I believe in data, and I believe in journalism, but you know, th- no one, you know, who does data journalism isn't acknowledging that there's a role for the the journalist to be looking well, at the no, data you, and reaching conclusions, yeah. and it's not the data just doesn't speak on its own. No, sure. Right? I mean, if you looked at that chart, you know, where, I mean that that graph where Nate talked about the quadrant that he was interested in covering on right. his site, um, it's clearly driven by data. And then, yeah, of course, there's an interpretive pro- part of the the process right. in, in some way. Which some which was one word of which for which we punditry. It could be punditry, <laughs> but I would say that but he would suggest that the way that we use the word now, I would yes, say. Yes, I agree. The way that we use opinion and punditry is actually probably should be called a propagandist. Yes. Um, well, that's fair. Look, Nate's not a propagandist. I don't believe that what Nate did then, I don't know him, never met him. I don't believe that either. But I think, but again, this is one of the things we talked about that night. You know, it would have been, it was interesting as a test case, you know, when Nate came out with his first set of projections about the Senate races this year. And he said, you know, there was a 50-50 chance the Democrats would lose the Senate. All of a sudden, all these liberals who, who part of the thing that was going on in, in 2012 was Nate, was on the New York Times where people of a general more, generally more liberal bent get a lot more information than they do conservatives who might get their information from Fox News or from other places. Liberals who were nervous about Obama's prospects were able to get succor from reading Nate. 
And it turned out that he was right and that they were right. And so therefore, there was this kind of big group hug about how, yeah. you know, the data had spoken, the data was right, and we all were right to know that Obama was right all along. In the in the case of the Senate race, all of a sudden you had all these liberals saying, "Well, what does Nate Silver know?" I mean, well, yeah, attorney, I would you know, agree. It, and so and and so there's again, you know, if what if the data had been di- if the data had been different, and Nate was, I, I believe you're right. I don't think he's a propagandist, but if he had been forced in the pages of the New York Times to be writing, actually the race is really close, and Obama might lose, right? The phenomenon would have been wildly different, and the data, you know, in the next race may speak in a different way, and and that the the sociological phenomenon of the, yeah. the of Nate as God, right, was largely driven by the fact that the, the things lined up. He was able to say things on the basis of data that also gave liberals a lot of comfort, and then that turned out to be true. I'm just saying, I think I you think know, that narrative is almost right, but I think that you're the the one piece of it that I think is missed in that narrative. And, I, and I, by the way, the one part of it that's so right is when I read Krugman's column in the Times about Nate. Now I. Uh, and I'm obviously, you know, I'm liberal and I am right there with Krugman a lot of the time. And I wanted to like throw some, I wanted to rip the, I was even reading it on a screen. I want to throw the screen across the room. It's like, how dare you? Right. How dare you to be so obvious in your loyalty to a set of ideas that have nothing to do with what this guy's trying to do. Right. And like, how dare you assail this? But, uh, but I think what, and I ask is that the part that that narrative avoids is that four years before on his own. He did what an alternative band would do. You're talking about yeah. REM on Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, Nate Silver at the Times was REM on Warner Brothers. Yes. But what Nate did that none of these other people did was... And he deserves huge credit He for got them. these kids, yeah. literally kids, to to um, watch what he did in 2008 yeah. and, to, and then the four subsequent years, or the three before he went to the Times, and they became fans... So that when he went to the Times, they were out there telling their parents, they were telling their friends, were writing about him on their blogs, right? Yeah, and yeah, that, yeah. which is not to say, who cares about arguing this out? Um, but I agree with all that. And, you know, I just think, you know, one of the things, but it's, it's just funny. It's like, you know, in 2008, the notion of, I mean, you know, again, there's, you're right. Nate Silver in 2008 and Nate Silver in 2012 were totally different phenomena. And, and, you know, in 2008, it was still largely the phenomenon that was not, he was not, he was known mostly in the worlds of my world, you know, where, where political journalists and other people who were kind of in the know were like, hey, this is kind of awesome that someone is actually taking the time yeah. to look at all the polling that's being done and average it and then wait, do a weighted average, like polls that are you good, get who's more. good and who's not. Wait, wait, yeah. poll, yeah, averages, the polls that have proven to be reliable get more weight, but polls that have proven to be unreliable get less weight. That's, But that's, I mean, I got to say, totally incredible breakthrough at the time, but also like, it's like the, it's like, you know, it's like the iPod, you know, it's like <laughs> now, like the idea that like someone would eventually commit, create a solid state digital music player that would spawn like a revolution at the time was like, whoa. And now it's like, well, of course, actually, you know, and the same thing is true in this case, right? The, 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 and again, it doesn't take anything away from Steve Jobs to say that it now seems obvious, nor does it take anything away from Nate's breakthrough in 2008 to say, this is now going to be a commodity business, right? Because the truth is it is obvious. And his brilliance was to point out its obviousness before a lot of other people thought it was obvious was, Hey, you know, if we apply some basic statistical rigor here, we can look at these polls and we can come up with something that is, of course, it makes more sense to have to take all the data that we have and put it in a big pot and, again, wait for success and failure. And then we can come up with a reasonable predictive tool that 
was radical at the time and now seems totally obvious uh, and million and, and hundreds of people are doing it there's not a new you know yes. everybody can do it it's not yes. you know but then at the at the end and i think i realize why maybe people i think people look at you and 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 mark and and probably you a little bit more as being cool that you're somebody you still like you said you referenced the first thing you said is at elvis costello last night you're still so plugged in culturally yeah. john to sort of high low culture you mix into all these different crowds and i i think that if a stodgy book was written about the um election and didn't include this or uh, this thing that happened it would have been like of course but i think part of what happened is um i'll use we broadly we think of you as some as being so on it and hip and cool that i think people probably felt like oh man i i wish because he's one of us they're one of us that they would have you know this this piece of it that that um captivated all of us and that we wish they would have written now that i think that's probably what yeah, it was possibly you know, I, possibly um, you know, it's I was, just one. I always, I always hate to disappoint people. Who the, 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 if there is anybody out there in the world who actually thinks I'm cool, I would hate to disappoint them. Well, no, maybe <laughs> what you're actually saying is that you were cooler because in, you would have written about it before, like I, that you wrote about it. But I mean, you've, you know, you've you've written about it before. Yeah, I just think like you know, part of the thing of doing a book is you got to decide what your book is and what your book isn't, right? And, and I, 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 I love the book. I read it the day it came out. And you I, know. you know, I've written in my life. You know, I, I went to the John F. Kennedy School of Government of studied public policy. I've written about p policy in enormous depth, you know, or at least what I think of as enormous depth, or at least enormous length. You know, I'm interested in policy. I'm interested in demographics. I'm interested in data. I'm interested in a whole bunch of shit, like, you know, the changing nature of the American democrat of the American electorate. Sure. I mean, I've written in real time in 2012, I wrote about it at length in New York Magazine, right? It's totally fascinating to me, hugely important and consequential in the future of American elections. But, you know... There's not any of that really, very much of it in in Double Down either. You have to pick a narrative because yet when you have to decide what you're what you're doing, like here's what we're going to do because we're not going to do everything. We're and and what we decided the for in the first book and in the second book was we're going to try to tell the story about the candidates and the people closest to them and what it's like to be to go through this kind of incredible carnival and we're going to try to stay as close as we can to those people, Barack Obama, Mitt Romney, their wives, their families, the the people in their inner circles and like how they experience this and we want to try to get as close to the bone with those people as we can and that means that there's a lot of phenomenon phenomena that we will not explore and that does not mean that, that we do not regard them as worthy or interesting or important or consequential it just means that the book's got to be we want to write a book that's about 500 pages and we're not going to write about everything and it's not an encyclopedia and it's not and, it's, and it it's, is and what you're going to write a compelling but i mean and, and i think i mean when i read you one thing that's uniform from your microsoft book to the stuff you wrote at wired to the new york magazine stuff and even here where you're fusing your voice with the partners is um you want to write something compelling and share your point of view without it, without your point of view in any way changing the story. Yeah. And, and I, again, you know, I'm interested in, you know, again, I'm interested in a lot of things and I've written about a lot of things in a lot of different ways. But in both of these books and in the Microsoft book, they're really about... You know, they're really all books. And one's a book about about was the Microsoft book was about the antitrust trial, and it was about you know the most powerful guy in the world in some ways at the time, Bill Gates, and you know his humbling in front of the something that was even more powerful than he was. It turned out was the U.S. government, and you know. It took me a while. Somebody, my friend Kate Boo, who's like really, you know, of all the journalists of my generation, you know, is really maybe the greatest. And, you know, she once said to me, as I had worked, I had written about business and then I had written about politics and then I wrote about technology and then I wrote about politics again. 
And I said, you know, Kate, I said, I'm, you know, kind of eclectic and I do all these different things. And now I'm obviously sort of settled into this political group. But Kate was like, no, you've written all you've written the same story over and over again. You're writing about pop. You're writing about power is what you're writing about. Yeah. You're that's your topic. And in those books, the, all three of them, you know, and one of them that I did solo and two with Mark, they've really been about people seeking power, great power and or people who possess great power going through the crucible whether that was of a, of a trial that turned a guy from being a titan of the new economy into being a grasping monopolist in the, idea, in the minds of a lot of people in America, or whether it was these candidates who run for office and go through the crucible of a presidential election, and what that psychologically, emotionally, intellectually, what that does to you, what you need to, how you grapple with that, and, and the challenges of that, that's just, to me, an incredibly rich topic. And I never, I like, you know, it's, it is... I, with I'm drawing no comparison here, I'll explicitly say there's no comparison between what we do and what Shakespeare did. But it's why Shakespeare wrote so much about kings, you know, because the human the richness of the human of so much of like of of of, of what of what you can get at through powerful people seeking, gaining, losing, well, grasping for power. You there's guys just... are fascinated by the court around powerful. Yes, people. yes, sure. And what they'll do in just to get a bit of proximity right. totally. and um, to pick up the crumbs yeah. in the same way that yeah. uh, Billy Shakes was interested right. in it. And I just, I, again, it's, uh, to me, it's endlessly fascinating and, and, and you know, and, 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 and diverting oneself from, you know, what we've tried to do with those books is try to write things that have a novelistic narrative propulsion. You know, like, the, we want them to be page turners. We want them to be like, in a way, like not screenplays, but like we really think of them as big these big set yeah, pieces but, but, and scenes and and you if you do if you go off on a tangent about demographics or about policy or about a lot of other things, you lose that propulsion. And you know, look, it's a real trade off, right? We all make trade offs in our writing. You know this in of your course. writing. We're making trade offs all the time. And so the trade off that we make in, in we trade off comprehensiveness about the election for propulsiveness of the narrative and that's one of the things that and, you're and ultimately you have to assign roles uh, to like because there are some who would say that the that 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 those quants were that nate was like the dragon slayer which actually the more which i would have said until you and i talked about it a lot and i i now understand the only dragon he slayed was um lame op-ed writers that's all if you really a worthwhile thing a great, to, oh no i'm it's thrilled a worthwhile, that he, thing, worthwhile thing to slay no, and he changed sure. and he definitely changed the way people are going to try to quantify elections going are quantifying elections going forward yeah. but he didn't actually slay any of the actual kings or dragons that you're talking about and so i i get that choice completely. but the, another thing that you raise is a guy who's fascinated by power and the abuse of power and everything that that gets you um and the, the good that power can do yeah, yeah. Uh, what happens when that guy becomes somebody in a position of power you know how does that change what you how does that change what you do because what are you and mark launching now well, we're doing. We're launching a, a, a somewhat ambitious um, uh, venture at Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg LP, uh, which is a thing called Bloomberg Politics, uh, which is a um, you know, in the language of the argot of our times, is a vertical, I guess, because it's focused and wants to go deep on a on a single topic rather than you know being just like a you know Bloomberg.com, you know, trying to cover all manner of news in the world. So we're doing this thing. It's a multi-platform vertical. We're trying to build a website. Um, where that's going to be, will be called BloombergPolitics.com, where we'll have a bunch of reporters and analysts and writers and and data 
uh, processors, uh, process, data, data, people doing data analysis and people doing data visualization and people writing long form stories and people writing short form stories and breaking news and, and a lot of video um, and, and do a ton of uh, try to cover politics in a really deep way uh, with a lot of different kinds of things. And TV. then we're going to and then we're going to have a TV show that's attached to that. So no one's really done what we're trying to do, which is to build a world class website to cover a single topic okay. and also have a TV show, a world-class, we hope. I mean, again, our aspirations yeah. are to build a world-class TV show and a world-class website. And, and, a world and class what are your titles? The two of you, what's your title? Well, we're the, are your titles at the company? Are you the, are you the we, publishers of this? Yeah, we are the co-managing editors. And you're hiring the people yeah. and firing them. I mean, no one's going to get fired, but you're hiring well, and firing. We're, we're early enough that we're, where we're still in the phase where we're hiring people who have not yet had to fire anyone. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but, but, uh, but if you'd like but to come, but Brian, you... if you'd like to come work for us, we could have you come work for us for a little while, and I'm certain you would do something would that would cause you fired. to get oh, fired for sure. relatively, sh- well, relatively I, I, short. I, I might speak truth to you. Yes, well, that's... And that, obviously, that's can't not... Can't have that. That's can't not allowed. That. Can't have that. But, uh, or I might tell you that uh, R.E.M. is better than the Smiths, and maybe that would... No, you'd be okay with okay all right, be good. Okay, good. Yeah. No, so, but, um, have you thought about the fact that now, you know, as you described Gates's journey from starting with this idea that he had, or Jobs' journey, or any of these people, especially politicians, many of whom, you would know this better than I, but some of whom certainly started out with uh, for doing it for the right reasons. Do you do you wonder about holding yourselves accountable? Yeah, I think I think you have to. I mean, I I don't think that's different from any place along. Look, I I've always thought, you know, it, it's never been. I don't know. Maybe I mean, I've had I've written about enough powerful people and written in enough situations. I never had to do the thing where, you know, I had to go call, you know, the 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 grieving widow of someone who was in a in a car crash or something. Right. And and those people learn very quickly, like what it's like to have like the power of media, because you're you're intruding in someone's grief and their life, and how you write about it can, you know, how you talk to them on the phone the first time yes. you pick up the phone. I never I never did have had to do that, thank God. And you know, but I've never been. It's always I've I've been lucky enough in my career to have worked for basically, like institutions like the Economist and. Wired and The New Yorker and New York Magazine, yeah, all of which intellectual cutting edge, but all of which are, have a big enough audience that like the, the, you know the things you're writing there will are going to get read, and but, so and so I, I it's never been lost on me the notion that we have a we journalists have a big role in 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 how public how the public perceives the people that we yeah. cover and that we have a huge responsibility therefore to be accurate and be fair not. But now you're putting on the hat of being a businessman also. Well, not really. Well, you're launching an entrepreneurial venture. It's true. But, you know, look, that's the same. I mean, you know, in some sense, I've always been part of a business. Every place I've ever worked for has been a profit-making venture. But, well, but I would just suggest I mean, that's, like a, be, that's like a, but that's like, um, a politician saying, I'm, I'm a statesman, not a politician. I'm well, a, a law. I'm not a politician. I want, I'm a lawmaker. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, um, well, I just wonder if you've thought about. All I mean is I'm not going to be out selling ads is my point. You know, I mean, and, but and people selling is, ads are going to benefit, yes, benefit you greatly. Yes. But people selling ads have, that's been the case at every magazine I've ever worked for. I mean, there's always been a publishing side of every magazine I've worked for. And I've been a journalist within those places, but I know that there's an ad sales team and I know they go out and sell ads. And sometimes I try and help them and go and sell ads and I'll go and talk to advertisers and try to do that because, Hey man, you know, if we don't, if we can't, you know, make some money here, you know, our, our enterprise is going to disappear. And so therefore, you know, yes. we are a business and we are also a public trust. And, and are you just a journalist in, in, in your mind? Your job is primarily a journalist's yeah. job now. Yeah, still. Still. Yeah, totally. I mean, 
you know, yes, again, to this in the same way. You know, I think that, you know, we will obviously be selling ads, and this is obviously not a philanthropic venture. Um, the, the mayor has a lot of uh, philanthropic endeavors going on, but, but Bloomberg Media and is Bloomberg not, not News are not one of them. But, you know, we are, um, uh, we are not, you know, business side guys, you know, and we will, we will I, I still think, you know, what I'm going to be doing is talking about politics. I mean, we're hiring people, but, you know, and we'll be helping to, to put this team together, but then we'll have senior managers who are going to run those teams, right. of, of teams of journalists. And what I hope to be doing once we get up and running is, you know, doing what I've done before, which is writing about politics and talking about politics. And, you know, we're, you know, we have a management role. I think that the, the, the slight difference is not so much the difference between being a journalist versus being a businessman. It's more that now we're both talent, and I put quotes around that, you know, talent in the yeah. in the sense of how we use that it's word in the business, not to say that, that word, not yeah. say we're highly talented, but just to say you're on camera we're both, and, we're both yeah. talent, out, content providers, content creators, and also managers in the sense that ultimately we're going to have some number of people who are who are how are you preparing for who that are, who are working for us so and, how are you and, preparing for that i don't know how i'm preparing for it. i'm going to a lot more meetings than i used to go to you know it's like one of the weird things like i mean if you want to just be personal you know i've spent it's been 17 years since i had a job an office job where i went to the office every day right. you know and and there was an office i went to and you know prior to that like in the last few years i've had an office in new york magazine and i've had a place at, at msnbc and you know if you have enough offices you don't really have an office you really work at home right. and you go to those places to transact the stuff you need to transact and then you get the hell out of there because if you stick around in the building too long someone says hey i want you to come to this meeting and the only way you can get done a lot of in life, in my opinion, is to like try to stay out of as many useless meetings as yeah, possible. Yeah, for sure. So now I go to a building at 58th and Lexington where 6,000 people work in the Bloomberg building, and I'm like, it's weird and freaky to show up at that same place every day if I'm here in New York City, and there are 6,000 people who work there. And I go, at least right now, as we're trying to build the thing, hire people and think through how we want to do what we want to do, you know, I go to a lot of meetings. And... And, you know, I'm, I'll be happy when I get to the place when we have the thing built well enough and, and have enough other people helping us that, that I'll have to go to fewer Are of you excited uh, about the idea of managing and helping grow journalists and do that? Is it something yeah, that you really totally. consciously aspire yes. to doing? Well, it was something that part of what was attractive about this was this notion that, like, that was new. Like, I had I was very comfortable and had been gotten, you know, beyond the, the, the sort of dizzying aspects of the success of game change and what it did to my life which was to like basically amp everything up by like by like exponentially and made me cost me a lot of sleep and and sometimes cost me some quality in terms of the work I was doing because I was just spread so thin but I had gotten pretty okay at managing like um writing magazine articles working on a book having a television gig giving speeches around the country, doing stuff yeah. like that. I got relatively good at managing that, but I got into the place where, like, okay, like, I've been doing that, some that some version of that, some combination of those things for a long time. The notion of trying to build something, which is more of how I think about it rather than manage, but the notion that, like, hey, you can do a startup here, and it will be a well-funded startup, because one of the great advantages of working at Bloomberg is that this is this huge company that makes, has $8 billion a year in revenue and, like, $2 billion a year in free cash flow, and the mayor... You know, has 
these big media and news operations that are not really big money makers for him. You know, they live in some sense, they're subsidized by the terminal business, which is what drives that company. And you'll have the money, you know, making good journalism costs money. And part of the crisis of journalism in our world now is that, you know, every established journalistic institution is in, is in a financial vice and is contracting and struggling to find a way forward in this period of rapid technological change, et cetera, et cetera. So you can go to a place where you will have enough money to hire really good people and field them and try to do journalism in what you think of as the right way and build, you know, like after having covered presidential campaigns for 20 years or 25 years and having seen a lot of stuff, I have, and Mark does, we have some ideas about like how it could be done better and ideas about things that people do now traditionally that are not that smart. And we're like, okay, so let's take our ideas about best practices and take this pot of money that is like, you know, gives us the ability to actually go hire smart people to help us and make something that's of quality. And we live like in a world where really, you know, it's it's for some financial reasons and for some other reasons, the state of political journalism is horrible. I mean, it's really bad right now. And especially in the television world where it's it's flattening and overly simplified and overly partisan and overly reactive and and reductive. And, you know, to be able to try to make something that is like smart and also fun and recognize that politics is like a great spectator sport and it's fun. It's a great carnival and it's a great, you know, thing. Make something smart, make something fun and make something that admits to the complexity of the world that like the world is complicated and it's not all black and white or all red and blue, that it's a complicated world and you can like have, you can do this with nuance. That is an appealing thing to build something that might and, be and, able to achieve that. And how focused are you on, uh, on voice? Because in your own writing, voice is clearly so important. You know, the first book you referenced when you walked in here is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. We've talked about Hunter S. Thompson Campaign a Trail. Uh, oh, you mentioned Campaign Trail 72. I did, yeah. But La- Las Vegas also. Yeah, great book, um, yeah. In terms of books that have influenced the idea of, you know, journalism, uh, I mean, one's a novel and the other's journalism. It's campaign trail. But how uh, how have you thought about the way you want the site to have, is it a unified voice? Is it each writer's expression of their voice in their way? How are you thinking about it? I think you want to have, a, again, and I just, I just sort of talked about some of this aspects of, like, you want to have a unifying sensibility. Um but I think that, you know, storytelling yes, is that's the... is is at the core of what we do and what I do and what I've you know, what I'm interested in doing. And so um, creating the, having a sensibility, which is the things I just said a second ago, smart, yeah. fun, sure. complicated, and then then giving people a platform to develop their own voice, you know, and having, you know, I, I, I don't the, the, you know, the, I don't want we don't want this to be like The Economist, a great magazine for right. sure, but where. Even though, even if there were bylines, which there aren't, but are you, you guess, still wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Are you difference trying between to them. hire? But I guess what I'm asking is, are you trying to hire people where the voice is already intact, or are you trying to hire young people where Both. you're going to help them develop the voice? Both. 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 We will have some. We will hire people whose names you know, and you will say, "Ah, I understand." Like that. That those are that brand. Makes sense. Those are brand, those are brand name people, and we'll hire a bunch of. 23 and 24 year old kids who are like super hungry and like and we'll try to hope you know us and the people we hire to help us do this we'll try to teach them how to be good journalists and also give them an ability to develop a voice uh-huh. and, a, and a and a and a and give them a you know make them into what I think of as good storytellers you'll, you'll coach them up yeah we hope to how uh, how conscious you I was when I, I introduced you before you, you came in here and I talked about two different things one is um, you seem to have this incredible faculty to be able to 
um, participate, observe, and record events at the same time. <laughs> and some people would call that like some kind of psychosis. It I might guess. be. <laughs> but I'm wondering how consciously you, if that's just who you've been since you were 16 years old, or how consciously you worked to develop the it's now completely incorporated into who you are so that at that nets game the truth is you 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 uh you probably saw the guy clock you and notice you you might not have seen him tweet about you you're there you're engaged but it's clear that you're watching it all and filing it for use later did you you know how did that come to be part of, of who you are I really that's a, it's a, it's a uh, fascinating question to which I have no good answer. Certainly, you know, I think part of it's just innate and and maybe genetic or whatever, I, you know. But you know, I've I, I can I can think about like as I think about my progression of, as a journalist, right? When I started at the Economist, um, you know, I learned there was a, a very particular set of things that I learned there, and they had to do with exposition and clarity and analysis and being able to take complicated subjects and render them in a clear, concise way, often using data, as funnily enough, because I always think it's one of the things I think is funny about data journalism is that at The Economist, it was always like, well, it's not journalism, it doesn't have data in it. It doesn't have data in it. You know, but when I left, part of the reason I left was because I was like, okay, I, that part, that, those two colors on the palette, you know, on the, the painter's palette. I, I, I got those now. And what I don't have and that I want is narrative and personality and structure and, and, and how to do how to tell a long-form story. So I want to, like, now... I, I, I've tried that. I've done a few freelance things. But I want to now start painting from a broader palette, right? And I can think about, you know, the, the, the seminal, for me, pieces I've worked on or periods of time, stories I've covered, periods of time where I grew from being able... from doing... A rel- one relatively limited set of things well to being doing another thing and then getting bigger on the palette like and having painting from more with more colors but the the human thing of you know that thing you're talking about which is being in a constant state of kind of being a reporter and data processing in the back of your head and also being kind of a loudmouth in the middle of the moment yeah. with a beer in his hand you know that I, I think it's just kind of always been there, you know. And, and do you think that? And I, I think it makes people crazy who have to actually live with me or deal with me in most cases because you, I'm not like it's not that pleasant. Um, <laughs> I, well, I understand. I mean, that's, I, well, I'm sure that at times in your life it wasn't that pleasant yeah. for people. I mean, you know, me, you, and I. I mean, we uh, recognize each other from across the table as. Uh, Oh, this is fun. Yeah, right. But yeah. Uh, there are people for whom, uh, for either either of us, are uh, a little bit much to have to <laughs> grapple with. <laughs> you know, for, yes, for sure, for sure. Um, and uh, we were just uh, we're just lucky that somehow the thing, the ions <laughs> lined up that it was okay because right. we could have. I mean, we could have brawled. Yeah. Right. I mean, someone putting us at a table together may, had to and know, we, we may, and we may yet. We're almost. I mean, we're practically there. Yeah. Even though we're about to go spend another four hours together, but. Do you think that that combination of um, abilities, attributes, uh, identified in you at an early age, uh, it's not that I want to be a writer, it's that I, I am a writer and I have to go chase that down. How did that How did that start to surface for you? It's weird. I don't, you know, it's a good, uh, well, 
I have a very clear recollection of how I decided I wanted to be a writer. I was in ninth grade. I just started at this Catholic high school in Los Angeles, and um, we were given a in my ninth grade English class. We were given an assignment to write about um, uh, to do a, a thing comparing two poets. It was like an essay thing, and um, and I decided I was going to write about Paul Simon and Bob Dylan. And I was the only one in the fa- in the class who didn't like write about an actual you know what would be normally traditionally classified as a poet. And I was like, I asked the teacher, "Can I do this?" And he said, "Yeah." And so I went and wrote this essay about Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and comparing, you know, their lyrics. And and when I finished it, I was like, that was fun. Like, that was great. And I got good. And and, and the teacher, it was the the teacher liked it. And I got positive reinforcement. And so the combination of me having enjoyed doing it. And I was a huge music head then. And I was like, that was kind of great and fun. I kind of got to break a rule on one sense because everybody else was doing the more traditional thing, doing Yates and whatever. I, th- it was fun. I enjoyed it, and I got positive reinforcement. And I swear to God, you know, by by, by, by and, and that was in the middle of my ninth grade year. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be a writer. I don't know what kind of writer I'm going to be, but this is the thing I can do. And I kind of enjoy this. This was fun. I want to write about other things. Like, what are some other topics I could write about? And that I haven't really ever thought about doing anything else. In some ways, like. I kind of regret it. Like when I went through college, I remember seeing people go like they're a pre-law and then they're a pre-med and then they're yeah. like an art history major all in like four years. And the world seemed open. They could be anything when they graduated college. They might go be a banker or a museum curator or, you know, a guy who sells tacos on the beach in Costa Rica. You know, I was always like, this is the only thing I really I'm, I'm really, really good at that. I really get the certain kind of buzz out of. It's the only thing I, where I was like, yeah, this is good. And so I was like kind of felt locked in on it from pretty much like the time I I was like 12 or 13. But it turned out to be a ramp, actually. I mean, if you think about it, it's not just the thing you've done. You went the reverse way, right? So you'd followed this one trail, but then that trail ended up, shoot, you know, being something yeah. attached to something else. And now you're doing, you know, you're running this whole uh, enterprise. Just a couple more things and yeah. we can finish. By the way, when I was in law school, I wrote about, uh, there was an ethics class, and I wrote about morality and ethics in Dylan's lyrics right well and there you go was, that's there you i go. was able to do it i'm sure yeah. your paper was better because well i was in ninth grade so i'm sure my paper was not better but, but the com the the uh, paul simon dylan comparison is now going to be our conversation because i've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about it and i don't i can't explain why uh one is you know better than the other though i i feel uh, yes although they're know, both pretty great there are two of my oh yeah, dude I mean, if i made mean, my list they're two of my favorites i don't really want to choose between those children i mean you, you can dylan we dylan, can. dylan is greater but you know, I don't like. No. That's it. Really, is like comparing, you know, Ted Williams to, you know, to to Joe DiMaggio or something. It's like, you know, okay, well, yeah, Ted Williams is a better hitter than Joe DiMaggio, but really, like, you still want Joe I, DiMaggio I gotta, on your team. I got a tough one today. My son is backpacking uh, in across Europe with his friends, and uh, he just texted me. Uh, obviously, you'll figure out where he was when he texted me, but he goes, "If you had to just rate it absolutely, who's greater, LeBron or Monet?" <laughs> Which I thought was like <laughs> Sammy Koppelman from Paris. I just thought it was a great yes, quick dispatch yes. from Paris, and uh, I, I I answered uh, my Monet. But um, uh, well, it's sort of like what's greater, a Porsche or a really good like naval orange. You know, sure. it's like, I mean, like like, that's a great, what, like that, oh well, um, hmm. that's what Amy wrote back. Yes. She said uh, they're not apples. But um, right. uh, I just want to talk and by talking for a second about ambition, because as much yeah. as you talk about how Shakespeare and, and you. 
um, when you compared yourself to Shakespeare, as much I as you talked I about, did, I didn't compare myself as to Shakespeare. Much as I didn't. you talked about, I just, I just, I'll just say, this, I just I want to say this one thing about this, right? It's one of the weird. The reason I, I well, use the reason, of I, course, you didn't compare yourself. No, but the to reason I mention is because one of the things that, like, you know, people will say about these books, you know, is like you get well, these guys are just interested in gossip and the, you know all this human foibles. Like, why aren't they writing about the stuff that really matters? And I, th- that's where the Shakespeare thing in a weird way came up from. I'm like, well, you know, I mean, here's the reason because, you know, I mean, it's like that, the, all that stuff, I mean, Shakespeare is obviously fictional, but that's what the, the, this human grit and passion and the in- human entanglements and all that stuff, that's what, you know, makes politics compelling to me among, uh, again, as, as interested as I am at other topics around it. And the Shakespeare thing, I would often say, like, well, really, like, you know, like, you're, these are these are stories full of deceit and betrayal and, and lust and, 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 of child, course. and murder and like, well... Uh, that's, I mean, is that too gossipy? I don't get it. And I never kind of got like why people would sort of like think that focusing on the human and I would use the Shakespeare thing to kind of say, well, you know, writer, a writer much greater than me as was interested well, in, yeah. in these same human foibles and strengths and all that kind By of stuff. I have like the Godfather is a take on Lear in a way. Right. And sure. And, and still, what does that turn on? What is the ultimate betrayal in the Godfather turn on a brother feeling that another brother passed him by right he totally. was passed over so that's but i would just close by talking about a- ambition, ambition for right. a second which Sorry, is, didn't mean to didn't mean to get off on no that, that's on fine that i said the thing about shakespeare so you you had to uh, yeah. uh defend the ground but um ambition in a weird way like the ambitious journalist should be oxymoronic because uh, it's hard to see how one uh, um objectively or platonically would serve the other um uh and but it seems to me like when you were talking about what ails journalism, I mean, I think one of the things is that this idea that journalists, like like not just journalists, um, fame and fortune is just around the corner if you can tell the most salacious story, not you, because you and Mark, I think, are um, have channeled your ambition in, in an incredibly useful and powerful and potent way. It's why I admire what you do and um, I'm so interested in talking to you. But how do you personally keep ambition in check to avoid, because I think those claims, like what you just said people say about the books is nonsense. That's not what you do. I see a tremendous amount of restraint in what you do. Because uh, I've heard you tell stories privately that if you'd put them in the book would be pull quotes and things people would take. How do you think you guys um, uh, um, balance your obviously real ambition, you know, you're a couple of Harvard guys, you just, for grad school, and you're guys who've had, obviously are fueled by a tremendous sense of, a, a bunch of different stuff, but one of those things is ambition. How do you rein it in? Well, you know, I think, uh, I look, I think ambition is a, is a fine thing, you know. My ambition, you know, really, for a long time, you know, and still is really just like is a story, a good story well told. And the ch- I find writing, and I, I don't, you know, you and I have not spent that much time talking about this, but um, I, I know from the little we have talked about it that you will you will nod your head aggressively when I say this. I find writing, as much as I just said a second ago that I found enormous joy in it in ninth grade, oh, yeah. I find it like an incredible f- 
burden. It's like the hardest thing in the world to do it well. And like I, you know, I put every editor I've ever worked through, worked with, will tell stories about, you know, how I've broken every editorial system I've been in by like pushing, figuring out, well, what's the real deadline, not the fake deadline? Sure. Like how late can I actually file it before the thing has to ship? You know, and like I need that extra half an hour, not because, I mean, just because I'm psycho. I'm not, try- I make no excuses. I, I'm going to pull that all nighter because I can't get the words on the page in the way that I want them to. And so the, the arrangement of the words in a way that I find pleasing is an enormous intellectual, mental, psychological, um, psychotic kind of burden. And I find it like it's horribly painful and incredibly, incredibly satisfying to be finished and get it done and look at it and go, yes, this now pleases me. But the process getting there is horrific, right? So a lot of the ambition that I've is like, I've, as I said, I kind of have picked up, I've tried to you know, started with one thing in journalism and got and, and been put pieces together. And at each phase, it was like the ambition mostly was like to like get better at this and be able to do to tell the story better and to tell the story using more tools and to get, you know, to to to, to reflect that complexity I talked about and and drama and whatever the various story elements are. But like harnessing all of that and putting it on the page in a way that I would like find like, well, OK, that's not bad. That's actually okay. That piece of writing. My main ambition has been to do that. And, and that still is the case. You know, I think anybody in public life who gets to a level of, um, of notoriety and where people are paying attention to them again, especially in the journalism business, it's, you kind of constantly have to rein yourself in, in the sense that remembering that like, you know, what is important here, which is, you know, trying to tell the truth about, people who are way more powerful and way more influential in the world than you are. And, but remembering that like you can do big damage if you up and like trying to have a strong sense of ethics and a strong sense of responsibility. And, you know, you said this thing about restraint. I mean, there are, you know, in both the books in game change and double down, there are dozens of stories about every one of those candidates who, who, who I would say other journalists might have been like, well, I have this pretty well confirmed and I'm going to put that in. You know, I'm not saying who those, you know, I just, you know, our standards are always like super, super, super high because writing in an omniscient voice, it's like, we're saying this happened. This is true. You know, we're not going to say one, according to one aid or according to two aids or whatever. We're saying this is what happened. And if someone comes out after the book comes out and says that didn't happen, you know, we have to somehow like try to defend ourselves. So we are like. If it's not, if it's, it's got to be bulletproof for us to put in the book. And there's many stories that rise to the level of really great stories, but not quite bulletproof. And so they end up on the cutting room floor. And I'll tell those stories to a friend over dinner because I think they're probably true. But I don't, I'm not 100% convinced. You're not going to publish that. But I'm not 100% convinced. Now, if I'm not 100% convinced, I don't want it to be in the book. And that, you know, that sense that that's where the restraint, the restraint comes in where it's like, partly it's you owe it to the people you're writing about. Partly it's part of what a journalist should be really all about, right? And partly it's, the only thing I have is my reputation, and the only thing I have is my credibility, and if I f*** that up, I'm lost, right? And so you owe it to them, and you owe it to the profession, you owe it to your reader, and you owe it to yourself to exercise restraint and not go for, you know, the the, the cheap score when you're not really 100% sure that it's actually real and right. Well, you answer that exactly as I, I'd hope, and even better, which is, as I'd hoped, and even better, which is channel because people ask me this question every day um always wanting to want to funnel their ambition very often into how can i get to the next step and i what i always try to say is 
funnel that ambition into making the work undeniable. Right. And then the rest of the stuff will flow. And that's really, I mean, if you're somebody out there who's a creative person, a writer, what Heilman, who's, you know, clearly one of the, the, the giants of this walking around right now, still the most important thing to you ultimately is getting it right on the page not just accurate right. but conveying the emotion that you're trying to convey all and if it. you pour all of it into that then the good stuff flows and yeah and i think Probably. you know and, and you know it's not as simple as to say you know always cream rise to the top and you know look there's a lot of luck and a lot of things that you know in order to have a certain level of success again like i said at the beginning you know there's a certain lightning strike quality to certain things but in the end i think you know you have this obligation again to all parties to be focused on the work right in front of you. And that, like, you can't be thinking about how it's going to get read. You can't be thinking about how it's going to get received. You can't be thinking about what TV appearance it might get you or, like, what headline it might get you on page six or whatever that is. Because in the end, you know, that's just a sucker's game, right? The the ultimate thing is, you know, I can have control over this page that's in front of me right now, and I can make sure that it's right, and I can also make sure it's the best that I can do with the, the, the finite skills and talents I have at my disposal. That I have control over. I can make this as good as it can be, as right, as fair, as accurate, as well executed within my current level of ability. I can make that I have control over. Everything else, you don't have any control over. And so, you know, stay focused on the things that you have some control over and on the things you don't have control over, it, it's just, it's it's foolish to try to like game so that system. So let foolish it go. To game that system. Hey, John Heilman, thank you so much for being here. People want to find you on Twitter. You are at J Heil, at J H E I L. And the new website will be live when? Uh, hopefully in a few months. And that'll be called? Uh, BloombergPolitics.com. Great. And if you want to find me, I'm Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, Subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.